It's the day South Africa has been waiting for. Eight arrests, 47 charges, over 120 million rand stolen. Yes, you guessed it. It is VBS. The case involving customers who are some of the poorest in the country and on the other side, senior politicians, bankers and government officials in a wide web of corruption. Corruption erodes trust in public institutions and democracy. And in many cases, it's also a tool for organized crime networks to wash their money. Let me tell you a story of what many believe to be the biggest corruption scandal ever anywhere in the world. This bribery and money laundering scheme spread throughout Latin America, but the epicenter is in Brazil, and it has already cost that country billions of dollars. The accumulation of gold in the treasury of private individuals is the ruin of democracy. They invent illegal modes of expenditure. For what do they or their wives care about the law? And then one, seeing another grow rich, seeks to rival him, and thus the great mass of citizens become lovers of money. These words were written over 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece by the great philosopher Plato. But in a modern context, Transparency International defined corruption as the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. In this time of unprecedented economic recession due to the COVID health crisis, organized corruption networks are in a perfect position to bleed the system, and organized criminal groups will be in line to slice off their share. By the end of April, the US Federal Reserve had already pumped $2.3 trillion into the economy to help fight coronavirus. And when huge economic stimuli are injected into the system, it causes unintended consequences. As one of our guests today wrote, an emergency offers unparalleled opportunities for the coordinated looting of public coffers that feed such networks. Life is upended, emotions run high, and in the scramble, tested procedures are ignored and structures are disorganized. Exhausted decision makers pressured to do something miss crucial details even as quantities of cash are injected into the chaos. This is part one of COVID and corruption. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. This special edition podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. We typically follow the definition of corruption as the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. And more often than not, we look at this as financial in nature, which it often is. But when you start to look into the nuances of different criminal acts, it becomes a much more loaded word. COVID is an unparalleled global health crisis, and nothing like this has been seen in living memory. So what does corruption mean within the health sector? Some see health as a currency in its own right, and through the lens of human rights, the WHO enshrined it as such in its constitution. So does intentionally withholding access to good health or good health care fall under the definition of corruption. Sarah Steingruber is an independent global health consultant based in Berlin and an affiliate expert with the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Center. 
So I think it's a good question because as you say, you know, it's difficult to define corruption. It's difficult to sort of pinpoint what it means in, a, in any specific context. I, I used to work with Transparency International. There we maintain the, the working definition of the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. And now when we think about it in the, in the context of health, I mean, typically we tend to think of corruption as involving money. And of course, often it does. But within health, there are, from where I stand, there are many different kinds of currency that you can either give or withhold, such as information. And arguably, health itself is a currency. So if you think about it through the lens of human rights and health itself is enshrined in the WHO constitution as a human right, that intentionally withholding access to good health or good health care, I would argue also falls under the definition of corruption. So your speciality is within the health sector, as you pointed out. How pervasive is corruption within that sector? Well, there are actually estimates, and I would say conservative estimates, that of the total 7.5 trillion US dollars that are spent on healthcare every single year, that around 6% of that actually is corrupted. This is what we can justifiably quantify. That doesn't mean that that is the extent of it. As I said, it's, I think it's a conservative estimate. When we take that 6%, that actually equals 450 billion US dollars each year. And the WHO estimates that in order to achieve universal health coverage, which is sort of part of their major goals until 2030, that we need 370 billion each year. So arguably corruption is what is standing in the way of ensuring that everyone has the right and the accessibility to adequate health care. Have some countries in responding to the COVID-19 health crisis, have any of them breached anti-corruption standards? And if they have, do we know how they've done that? The COVID-19 crisis has kind of accelerated everything. Each health system has had to sort of accelerate its operations. And of course, that then means you can't follow anti-corruption standards. Anti-corruption standards typically are long-term, very calculated protocols that have to be followed. It requires lots of signatures and oversight. And this takes time, but in a life and death situation, you don't have time. So I think it's safe to say that absolutely anti-corruption standards have been breached. And it's not necessarily in a malicious way, it's more just to get the job done. But of course, this leads to, to vulnerabilities. I think one good example of that is in procurement. There's been a lot of need to procure lots of different types of materials, be that ventilators or medicines or protective equipment. It's all needed to be done very, very quickly. So of course, the calculated and standardized protocols for open and transparent procurement can't necessarily be followed in this type of a situation. Have we seen examples of how low-level corruption has potentially led to a further spread of the disease, for example, through bribing law enforcement officials to evade quarantine? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been cases, as you say, about bribing to get out of quarantine or cases of poor quality personal protective equipment. Um, it's hard to say at this point whether this was intentional or, or if it was simply substandard. It's difficult to say. There are also cases of favoritism by healthcare workers who are hoarding medicines for themselves and their families. 
There was also a case in March reported in, in Moscow of Russian oligarchs hoarding ventilators as they just simply didn't want to use the public health system, so they were developing in-home clinics. Now, while this may not lead to further spread, it certainly removes the access of, of other citizens uh, to these ventilators and can contribute to higher death rates. And then finally, when we consider the phenomenon of antimicrobial resistance, there is a lot of risk that there will be substandard and falsified medicines that are promoted and sold as having a, a significant impact on the COVID-19 virus. You know, this type of behavior could lead to further mutations of the virus, potentially making it stronger against what little treatment is, is already available at this point. Given your experience in researching these topics, what do you expect to happen if and when a vaccine for COVID is actually developed? I think when it comes to the COVID-19 response specifically, there needs to be a demand for back-to-front transparency around the entire research and development process. The next drug that comes out to treat or the next vaccine that comes out to prevent COVID-19 is going to be the most successful product that the pharmaceutical market has ever seen. And governments are going to be obligated by their citizenry to spend money on it. So we need to demand that whatever that is, that we know that it works, we know that it works well, and that there is complete transparency around the entire process and that the price, whatever is set, ensures accessibility for everyone. It's so critical to support civil society organizations who are keeping a close eye on the major areas of vulnerability to corruption. Without that, you know, it's very difficult to know what is actually happening and it becomes so much more difficult to hold them to account. That was Sarah Steingruber, an independent global health consultant based in Berlin and an affiliate expert with the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Center. Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation. And so when the first case of coronavirus hit in March, the WHO warned of a considerable threat to the fragile health systems in Africa. Fast forward to today, and there have been over 16,000 recorded cases of the virus and 420 deaths. And COVID-19 is spreading rapidly. The actual cases is thought to be much higher in the country of 200 million people, as only 94,000 tests have been conducted. But to make things worse, this week doctors are staging an indefinite strike to protest over hazard pay and, I quote, grossly inadequate PPE. At the same time, the terror groups Boko Haram and Islamic State West Africa province have used the situation to launch attacks. Corruption is a real issue in Nigeria. Wealth has been drained from the country for many years and hidden in offshore accounts and laundered through purchases of expensive property in places like London. And when this money is spirited out of the country, government systems like the health system suffer, which has a direct impact on the ability of the state to respond to the COVID-19 virus. And this could be a real disaster for Nigeria. Innocent Chukwuma is the regional director of the Ford Foundation in West Africa, based in Lagos, Nigeria. It's still evolving and it's going to, in my view, be the most negatively impactful virus that we've ever had in the history of the country and the, and the continent. If people think HIV, AIDS or Ebola ravaged the countries in Africa, I think COVID-19 is going to be much more negatively impactful. And why do I say that? I was in a conversation a week or so ago with the director of Africa Center for Disease Control, Dr. John Nkengasen from Cameroon, and he said, 
you know, quite instructively that he would have preferred a New York or Western world situation where the the virus exploded within a short period of time and everybody scrambled and rallied to get a control of it to the extent that situations are beginning to return in some ways to normalcy. But the African situation and Nigeria in particular is slowly evolving, slowly spreading. So we are looking at a marathon here rather than a, a, a sprint. Do you think that given the destruction that this virus could lead to, what kind of instability could that create and could it increase the risks of corruption further down the line? It's very easy to see if it started presenting as a health crisis, which it is, but it quickly spread because any disease that keeps away from work a significant number of citizens in a country, uh, it will not take long before it begins to impact the economy. And if it impacts the economy, and the economy is not able to cater to the needs of the citizens, of course, it will begin to have a social impact in terms of social upheaval. And if it begins to spread socially and begin to affect stability and conflict in societies, it would dovetail into politics, you know, because politics are essentially about mobilizing resources to uh, deal with the needs of the people. So, yes, it's going to impact corruption. Where does corruption come in? Because you need resources to basically respond the way the disease presents in terms of building, ramping up health facilities and infrastructure, in terms of uh, providing palliatives to citizens who are now being uh, made to not work and stay at home, and what have you. And then the same crippling system where resources made for public good are diverted to some private or primordial or communal uh, concerns come to fore. So we have situations where monies have been donated and monies have been budgeted. And if you go to communities, particularly vulnerable communities, who need this palliative to get by, because these are informal hand-to-mouth economic situations, and they don't get the palliatives. And if they don't get the palliatives, they are going to take the laws into their hands. That is why before the lockdown in Nigeria began to uh, relax about two, three weeks ago, we were beginning to see eruptions in some neighborhoods, in some communities where people could no longer bear it anymore, being required to stay at home and not being fed because they could not work. How important are civil society organizations in attempting to combat corruption? They are very, very important and in my view, central to any efforts to roll back corruption, illicit financial flow, and if you like, organized crime. And why do I say that? You know, when organized crime is endemic in a particular society or when corruption is endemic, the first thing it tries to do is to capture the state. When it captures the state, it weakens the state's ability to deal with individuals who run short of the law, and which is what encourages impunity. So when state agencies that are supposed to be saddled with this job, be they law enforcement agencies, be they the parliament that is supposed to pass progressive law, are captured, what you have left is essentially civil society and by extension, the media that need all the capacity and all the support they can get to be that independent actor pushing all other actors and holding them accountable to the role they are supposed to play 
in dealing with corruption. So they are central. And to the extent that um, they are weak in some societies, including Nigeria, makes it difficult for anti-corruption work to actually go on uh, as effectively and efficiently as you would imagine. And what role does organized crime play in Nigeria? Organized crime, uh, because if you look at the way Nigerian assets have been looted, the grand scale of corruption that happened in Nigeria, you will know that they will not just happen like that by individuals who are not linked and networked in some way or not uh, have a platform through which they plan for what they do. And that's why I feel um, organized crime is very key. And also in capturing state, because what organized crime is good at doing is looking at relevant state organs, relevant state agencies, relevant state individuals, people who are in high authority position and try to compromise them through uh, feathering their nest so that they could look the other way when they basically looting the, the societies and siphoning out. So, and this has been going on for quite a long time from the military era up to the current time. So they are quite uh, entrenched, both in the politics and the economy and, and also society. Nigeria as a country is rich in natural resources. Does that contribute to corruption? It does, because what does natural resources do to an economy or a country? Because these resources that did not grow organically through engagement of the people, they suddenly discovered whether it's oil, solid minerals, and start uh, exploiting, exploring them and uh, exporting them. So it suddenly gives rise to enormous amount of money than they have capacity to manage. And because the systems are not strong enough to ensure that people entrusted with those resources and not only use them for what they are meant for, but also are held accountable for them, it will not be long before it began to impact on level of corruptions in the country. That was exactly the experience of Nigeria. And you'll be surprised to know that the sort of legal framework that were design when this oil exploration started were still the ones that are still used in Nigeria today and um, wracked by uh, opacity. And the oil majors and those who are benefiting from this have made it difficult for any effort in the parliament to basically engage in legal reform that will make the proceeds of the industry much more accountable. And do we know where the corrupt officials are actually putting that money? I mean, where is it being hidden? Initially, it used to be in the West, UK in particular, US, but some of these countries have started enacting anti-corruption acts that makes it difficult for companies from their countries to engage in bribing foreign nationals to do that, which means they are now looking away to other countries in the Far East. Dubai has come up. And of course, the British Virgin Islands, all these Cayman Islands and so-called safe havens have also uh, received quite a chunk of illicitly stolen assets from Nigeria, both under a previous military government, Apacha. In the last couple of years, I think Nigeria has retrieved over a billion dollars stolen by that regime, but also other functionaries, ministers, and heads of government agencies who have been engaged in this. There are efforts now, cooperation and collaboration, emerging by the day with various countries in the world to ensure that uh, these characters are not allowed to keep the proceeds of what they have stolen from Nigeria. People will know how complicated a lot of these financial systems are, using shell companies to hide money and so on. How difficult is it to actually recover the public money that's been taken from the country? 
It's not easy at all, especially where the host countries are not cooperating because it, it requires the cooperation of host countries that have all kinds of uh, legal regimes preventing sending back the monies where they come from. And that's why uh, it's taking this long. If you remember the president or the head of state of Nigeria at the time we had this massive looting, Abacha died in uh, 1998. 22 years later, and we still have a large chunk of what is told still hiding in various banks around the world. But the cooperation is improving, but we still have all these legal framework. But when, when, even when the court processes are concluded, getting the money back to source countries is another bottleneck. The countries that are hosting the money will now come to put all kinds of conditionalities before they return the money. So to answer your question straightforward, it is not easy. It's easier to trace and a little easier to recover, but to return to source countries, all kinds of legal subterfuges are put in the way of developing countries in the world from getting back the monies stolen from their countries. That was Innocent Chukwuma, the regional director of the Ford Foundation in West Africa, based in Lagos, Nigeria. Throughout this podcast series, we've seen how different forms of transnational organised crime groups corrupt society. The once monolithic criminal entities have diversified and play a part in a vast illicit network covering multiple crimes. For example, drug trafficking, the illegal wildlife trade, counterfeit pharmaceuticals and human smuggling. One aspect that runs through all of these illicit markets is corruption. Organised crime cannot function without corrupt officials being either paid or allowing it to happen. They prey on weak governance and capture state institutions, and no country is completely free from corruption, in whatever form it comes. And that's why we're going to turn to the most powerful and wealthiest nation on the planet, the United States. Sarah Chase is a journalist and author of Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, and the upcoming book On Corruption in America and What is at Stake. The way I understand corruption is not so much a specific venal act of direct self-dealing by an individual official, but rather it's the operating system of increasingly sophisticated networks that weave together individuals in not just the public sector, but weave them together with private sector, you know, business people, and in most countries, without and out what you would call organized criminal. And so these are strands that weave together into an integrated network or a variety of networks. In different countries, these networks are more turbulent. They're beset by more rivalry than in other countries. In some countries, it's very tightly structured and controlled. In others, it's a bit more chaotic. But they are networks that are woven together through the exchange of personnel and the exchange of favors among personnel who may be at a given time situated in one or the other of the strands. That is to say, maybe situated in the private sector or in the nonprofit sector or in the criminal sector or exercising government function. And the members of these networks who are situated in government, their job is to retool, repurpose, bend 
the agencies and institutions that are in their grasp, uh, you know, where they hold their office, to serve the purposes of the network rather than serving the stated purpose of the public interest. And those agencies that they're unable to repurpose and weaponize in these ways, well, they simply defang them. They simply, you know, hollow them out or spike them, if you will, thinking of it like machinery. And you see this by, you know, agencies that are underfunded, understaffed, where the capable staff is moved to very low-level jobs. Often these agencies will be staffed, in fact, by people from the industries that they are meant to oversee in order to deprive them of effective power on behalf of the people. I read an article discussing corruption in the US which mentioned the term revolving door. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I don't like to use the the term revolving door. That is the standard term for this phenomenon in the United States, but I actually think it's misleading because revolving door focuses on the individual as though the individual is pushing the door between the public sector. They will have worked, for example, in the Pentagon doing military procurement for a number of years, and then they push that revolving door to go off and work in a defense contracting company whose main contracts are with the very same agency that that individual worked for in the Pentagon. So that individual has all these contacts and everything inside the the Pentagon. Um, And the point is that in hopes of obtaining that employment, he or she cuts deals when he or she is in the Pentagon, cuts deals that are very beneficial to the company rather than being particularly beneficial to American taxpayers, because the individual is looking forward to the great high-paying job she can get in the contractor. But I don't see it as the work of an individual. I see this as the operating system of the networks, which systematically place their members first in private sector, then in public sector, then in private sector, you know, keep this exchange of personnel as the way of, I want to say, weaving this network into a very dense fabric that serves itself rather than serving the public. What have we seen in relation to these networks that you mention, using this COVID crisis to steer public money to actual other network members? So what I've found around the world is that these networks are extremely effective at identifying potential major revenue streams. In many developing countries, development spending by countries in the global north is a very important revenue stream that gets captured. Well, here we are in a global pandemic that is requiring emergency, if you will, development money. That's really what's happening in the United States. And lo and behold, the network, which is located largely on Wall Street and in Treasury and among vulture investors, both in usually in the real estate derivative industry, the investors that buy up large quantities of, quote, distressed real estate and then securitize the mortgages into mortgage-backed securities of various types, that industry has a large presence in the Trump administration. 
If these government institutions are not trying to govern, what is it that they want to achieve through this behavior? Their objective is to maximize monetary returns for network members. Now, sometimes that's immediate, but too often, in my view, focus on corruption looks for immediate transactional self-dealing and quid pro quo. But very often these favors, which are monetary favors, but they are on a time release sort of thing. So the objective is monetary return, but that monetary return may be later and in disguised forms, or it may have already taken place in the past. And the reason I'm pretty sure that it's about monetary return and not power for the sake of power has to do with something, a more deep cultural transformation that's been taking place around the world since about 1980 which I discuss a lot in my forthcoming book on corruption in America. And it really has to do with the social significance of money. I think that it's fair to say that after World War II, for a few decades, money had ceased to hold the exclusive role of cultural status marker that it held in the late 19th and early 20th centuries where a person's social status really was almost exclusively measured by how much money they had in their bank account. And what about in relation to COVID? It is causing death because it also has led to premature, quote, reopening of economies. It has caused a kleptocratic extraction of excess profits from healthcare providers and materiel. It has led to the hollowing out of public health systems around the world. That's exactly what kleptocrats do. They cannibalize those agencies that are really meant to serve the public. You know, the ones they can't weaponize, they uh, cripple and often cannibalize as they're crippling and health systems the world over are a prime target. And that's the case in, in you know, developed countries uh, facing COVID. And, you know, they, they have made a human sacrifice of healthcare and elder care personnel, not to mention patients. And how do these networks take control of a country? And then is it about maintaining that position and continuing to exploit it? It's a great question. The most frequently used one that I have seen currently is instrumentalizing identity divides. And that means, you know, sectarian divides in countries like Lebanon or or Iraq. It means ethnic divides in places like Bosnia or some African countries. In the United States and much of Europe, it means a kind of urban, rural, cultural divide, which is increasingly mapping onto our political divides. And those identity divides obtain a kind of visceral affiliation by people. And there's been a lot of sociological work showing how, you know, the identity divides actually cause people to override their objective economic and political preferences. So they will forgive transgressions by their identity leaders of their objective political and social preferences and point the finger at the opposite party. 
So you see that in the United States where you have Democrats and Republicans pointing the finger of corruption at the other side and each party being very unwilling to shine a spotlight on its own transgression of ethical principles, right? And I would even say the current protests about police mistreatment of black people and people of color, you know, it's really interesting because that can be seen as a particularly egregious subset of the kleptocratic network's instrumentalization of identity divides, right? I mean, it has been a case in the United States that waving the race card has been an incredibly effective way of getting poor white people to side with rich white people on behalf of policies that objectively harm to a huge degree poor white people. So the whole racist card is a way of dividing the, the impoverished in America across the identity divides. But the problem is that you have people of color who are exclusively focused on the racism issue and are not noticing that trillions of dollars are being poured into the speculative financial industry. You know, and these are COVID relief funds that ought to be being spent on their community. So when they talk about defunding or reimagining the police, what's not on their mind is hundreds of billions of dollars today that are being spent in the stock market that ought to be redirected toward the population and in particular the disadvantaged population. And that means in this country, the population of color. That was Sarah Chase, a journalist and author of Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security and the upcoming book on corruption in America and what is at stake. A longer version of the interview with Sarah will be available soon as a bonus episode. Corruption severely hinders economic growth and the delivery of vital public services. And when a global health crisis emerges like we've never seen before, promising severe economic damage, the point intensifies. Throughout this series, we've turned to Latin America to discuss what role organized criminal networks have in the region. And it's clear that these groups are some of the most sophisticated organized criminal groups in the world and have their tentacles in many aspects of the illicit and licit economy. So is it no wonder that corruption is a real problem across Latin America? We've seen former presidents and prominent business leaders tried and convicted in Brazil for money laundering and corruption in Operation Car Wash, which had reverberating consequences across Latin America, and this case is still ongoing. But in 2019, Transparency International said that over 56 million people in Latin America and the Caribbean paid a bribe for public services. So what role does corruption play in Central American society? Ana Castro is the coordinator for Central America at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. For some, corruption is just part of the deal, the way things are done. But in recent years, people are more aware of the negative effects corruption has in society. This awareness has led to strong civil society advocacy against corruption. But uh, when the problem is systemic, as it is in some countries in Central America, being aware is not enough. It is a good start, but sometimes it only leads to frustration. So what role does corruption play? 
a significant one because it's everywhere. And what about wider Latin America? We can't say the problem of corruption is the same in every Latin American country. Each country has faced the problem and has different results. In Central America, for example, Costa Rica has uh, positively stood out for its rating in Transparency International Corruption Perception Index of 2019 with a score of 56 out of 100. And others have gotten worse like Nicaragua with a score of 22. Even though perception is not everything, it is an indicator of trust. And trust is gained when transparency and accountability are part of every public decision. Without them, corruption has a free pass. What role does civil society play in combating corruption? A really, really important one. The first important role is making society aware of the problem, how it operates, how to denounce it. For many years in Guatemala, the fight against corruption was guided by fear in some cases and indifference in others. But in 2015, the corrupt acts were so shameless and blatant that there was no excuse not to pay attention and have an opinion. Those who felt fear were supported by the whole society, and those indifferent took to the streets or social media to protest. Being aware is an important start, but it's just the beginning for civil society. I believe the next step is rejection of corruption, denunciation, and proposal for change. How influential are organized criminal groups in facilitating corruption? In systemic corruption, organized crime is part of the equation. The International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, in his final report, identified that in the fight against money laundering, for example, three related issues have been identified directly with the problem of income of criminal origin. First, corruption of political and officials who support organized crime activities. Second, infiltration of criminal activities in legitimate businesses, for example, the purchase and land sales. And thirdly, the presence of money laundering organizations coming from drug trafficking. Also, in corrupt systems, there is a danger that organized crime can infiltrate the judicial system. And this is where the greater danger is because the result is impunity, legal uncertainty, and hopelessness for society. And how do they capitalize on poor governance? They take advantage of institutional weakness to be an actor in the decision table without anyone noticing it. Or if they notice it, nobody can do something about it. They can take advantage of this incapacity, the lack of process, the legal loopholes that cause discretion. It is in these scenarios that corruption is best executed. And these are some characteristics of poor governance. And do citizens have trust in the government systems? My perception is no. Most citizens in Central America have no trust in governments. Not because there is no legal framework in place, it is because even though it exists, it seems that it's not being used for the development of the country. We have poverty, impunity, inequality, and also a long history of shameless stealing and using the government to pay political favors. So no, there is no trust. Who do people turn to 
if they cannot trust their own government? What I've seen in my experience is that people turn to themselves. They create community and fight together. There is no other way. The international community has also been an important partner for civil society, but at the end they leave. We stay in the country and keep fighting. It is important that civil society does not give up and leave their place in the conversation. As frustrating as it can be, the only way for change is to participate in the conversation and be vigilant of all acts of government. How has COVID impacted corruption? In my view, corruption benefits from distractions. So COVID interrupted normality. This is an ideal moment to pay and look aside. You know, there are specific areas of risk. First, public contracting of medication of health supplies is the most obvious. Expanding of international loans is another. But I would also investigate other areas that are usually at risk, but because of COVID, you look away. For example, local government public spending, civil service contracting, and petty corruption in general, in police, injustice, and administrative transactions. Has corruption within the health system impacted the government's ability to actually respond to the virus? In my view, it has an indirect effect. Because of corruption, we have a weak system, we have a weak uh, health system that in this crisis is unable to respond in an effective way. You know, the lack of everything, like beds, supplies, capacity in general, is a direct effect of corruption. With economic difficulties being felt around the world, what do you expect to happen? My main concern, given the situation, is that many people will find the excuse to be an actor in a corruption scheme. The fight against corruption is also a cultural and social fight. If you have a society with no other option, and in a country where the perception of corruption is high, being part of it can become a necessity. So that is what we have to look for and work on. That was Anna Castro, the coordinator for Central America at the GI. That's all we've got time for in part one. A special thank you to Sarah Chayers, Innocent Chukwuma, Sarah Steingruber and Anna Castro, and production help from Milos Yakovyevich. You can read more coverage of transnational organized crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where you can also find other podcasts like our new Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, Deep Dive Exploring Organized Crime, or The Road to Kyoto. We've also launched an important campaign called The Faces of Assassination. The Global Initiative is bearing witness to and keeping the memories alive of those who paid the ultimate price in the fight against organized crime. If you head over to assassination.globalinitiative.net, you'll be able to download the Faces of Assassination book for free. And don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe and share the podcast around. Our penultimate podcast is part two of Corruption and Covid. So until then, this is The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. We'll talk to you soon.